Welcome to Excess Returns, where we focus on what works over the long term in the markets. Join us as we talk about the strategies and tactics that can help you become a better long-term investor. Justin Carboneau and Jack Forehand are principals at Validia Capital Management. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Validia Capital. No information on this podcast should be construed as investment advice. Securities discussed in the podcast may be holdings of clients of Validia Capital. Hey guys, this is Justin. In this episode of Excess Returns, Jack and I discuss the long-lasting contributions Warren Buffett has made that go beyond his incredible track record over the past 55 years. From educating investors to maintaining a consistent message, to preaching discipline and long-term thinking, to promoting low-cost investment products and sensible investment strategies for most investors. We discuss these contributions in detail, all of which go far beyond Buffett's performance. And given it's the end of the year, we want to wish everyone listening a safe and happy holiday season. As always, thank you for listening. We hope you enjoy the discussion. Okay. Today, we're going to talk about an article that I wrote. Uh, the title of the article was Eight Timeless Buffett Contributions That Go Beyond Returns and Buying Shareholders. Um, I actually wrote it a few months ago. It, it is, it's actually one of the most popular articles um, that we've put out this year. Um, you're usually beating me with the page views on these articles, but this one, I think uh, it actually did really well. So that was, I'm pretty psyched about that. But anyway, so the idea for the article, actually where I got the idea, I had written an article before this one talking about Buffett's long-term performance. Um, But what sort of um, got me on this kick of talking about Buffett's performance and also thinking about these contributions that he's made that go beyond his performance was actually a discussion that was, I was thinking about this, it was with um, Wes Gray from Alpha, Alpha Architect, who we've had in the podcast, Adam Butler from Resolve Asset Management, who we've had in the podcast, and then Tobias Carlisle of Acquire's uh, Multiple and Acquire Funds, who we've also had in the podcast. So these really smart guys were talking about value investing and Warren Buffett's performance came up. And um, they were sort of going back and forth about how actually over the last 10 or 15 years, the performance of Berkshire Hathaway actually hasn't been um, that great. But then Wes made the point, and this is kind of where, like I said, where I got the article idea from, Wes made the point that, you know, regardless of his performance, these shareholders, the people that are invested with Buffett and in Berkshire Hathaway, you know, they've stuck to the plan. So even though his performance, you know, over the past decade or so hasn't been that great, investors have stayed with him. And so that in of itself is really meaningful um, because having discipline in investing um, is very important and one of the, I think, key ingredients to success. So with that being said, I sort of tried to think about what are the things that Buffett does? What are the contributions that he's made um, to sort of the investing world beyond the phenomenal long-term performance of Berkshire Hathaway? And the first one, and then Jack, I'll let you kind of comment on each and every one of these, but the first one that I kind of came up with is education. So basically what I pointed out to here is that Buffett has been writing, you know, perhaps the best shareholder letters for um, over whatever it is, 40 or 50 years. He's been writing these, you know, really educational, understandable letters where he talks about his strategy, his criteria for buying companies, uh, what he believes is important to being a long term successful investor. And then what he also does, and I've never been to a Berkshire shareholder meeting, but he has these meetings where everyone travels to Omaha and you know him and Charlie Munger sit up on stage for like five hours 
and answer um, you know, questions from shareholders. And one of the things, and then I'll let you comment on this in a sec, Jack, but there was a podcast with uh, David Perel and Jason Zwag where they were talking about Buffett and Munger. And one of the things that Jason Zwag pointed out was that Buffett and Munger have been consistent in their messaging uh, for a very long period of time. So I, I think that level of consistency is something that's really unique to them. I mean, you get you hear the same message over and over and over again um, from Buffett. So anyways, with that, I'll let you um, sort of come in here. Yeah, what I like about Buffett is he he basically says to people, do what I say, not what I do. And, you know, he understands that people want to follow sophisticated investors and they want to follow their approach. And, you know, Buffett is unique in his ability to do the things he does. And so he spends time trying to educate investors about what they should do, not necessarily what he does. And, you know, if you read his letters, he'll talk about things like indexing and he'll talk about, you know, emotions and biases and the, the role they play, and, you know, things that we were things that we know are, are the keys to being a successful long-term investor. And, you know, the, the lessons from Buffett is not, you know, can I follow, figure out how he came to this one investment and can I mirror his strategy? You know, can I pick stocks the way Buffett does? Because we can't do that. But what he does a great job of is he does a great job of giving people the tools they need to do what they can do themselves. And, you know, he talks about fees and indexing and the things that really are most important to individual investors, not, you know, picking the exact right company. Right. My second point was he oftentimes promotes the importance of controlling your emotions and sort of overcoming and, and combating your biases. And one of my favorite quotes from Buffett is, he said, to invest successfully does not require a stratospheric IQ, unusual business insights or inside information. What is needed is a sound intellectual framework for making decisions and the ability to keep emotions from corroding that framework. And a lot of, I think, the discipline and uh, and sort of um, a, a lot of that philosophy comes from Benjamin Graham's The Intelligent Investor, which Graham was writing about, you know, behavioral finance before behavioral finance was even a subject in finance. And then Buffett has continued to, you know, build on that sort of discipline, controlling your emotions and, you know, making sure that you don't let Mr. Market, as they say, you know, get the best of you, because oftentimes it's during those periods of heightened volatility or bear markets where investors let their emotions get the best of them. And that often results in bad decision making. Yeah, we've, we've talked about this before on the podcast. You know, the, the most important thing about an investment strategy is your ability to stick with it, not necessarily what's in the investment strategy itself. And, you know, that that's the that gets at this whole idea of emotions and biases. You know, investors tend to sell at bottoms. Investors tend to bail when they're underperforming the market. And what, what your average investor really needs is, is two things, you know, probably some S, an S&P 500 index fund or a blend of stocks and bonds and then an automatic investment plan to invest their money periodically, you know, over the long term. And that's basically all they need. So you know, there's this tendency to want to find these great strategies that, you know, that work great over the long term. And when you do that, when, whenever you differ from the market, you're going to have these periods where you look a lot worse than the market. And that's where these emotions and biases can come into the equation. So I think that's probably the most important lesson maybe you can learn is that your ability to control your emotions and biases and to put yourself in vehicles where you have, where you're in a position to do that is probably the most important thing for long-term success. Yeah. Um, the third point was being a long-term optimist. And so Buffett has talked about this a lot. And actually in, in May of this year, when he had his uh, uh, shareholder meeting, he kind of gave the example of um, the Great Depression. And he was kind of using that as a period where 
um, you know, it was a really tough period for this country, obviously, 25% unemployment, it was a, a very long recovery economically, and then we went to World War II and all that kind of stuff. But he, he also ha has made the point, you know, that in the 20th century, I mean, we've had dozens of recessions and bear markets. Um, we've had, you know, double digit inflation in the late 70s and the 80s. We obviously went through the Great Depression in the 30s. Um, we faced, you know, multiple wars that we've been in. And yet, you know, from uh, basically the early 1900s, the Dow Jones Industrial Average, you know, went from 66 to where, wherever ever it is today, something like over 30,000. So his point is, you know, you don't want to, uh, I, I guess, doubt that the best days of America are in the future. And sometimes people, and I think even this year, you know, it was hard to see. And obviously the Fed came in with, you know, unprecedented action and, and the stimulus. Um, and so, you know, but it was, it was hard to be optimistic in the depths of sort of the pandemic. Um, and no one knew it could have gone the other way, of course. Um, it didn't, at least so far. I mean, the market's come back. It's back now to where, above where it was at the beginning of the year. And so anyways, the point is, is, you know, just trying to stay optimistic about the long term um, and thinking that, you know, the best days of America lie ahead are, I think, are important if you're going to be investing in U.S. stocks. Yeah, one of the hardest things about investing is the if you look back and say, what were the times in history where I should have been the most optimistic? They were the times where you had the most reason to be pessimistic. You know, it's at the bottom in 2008 or the coronavirus crisis. You know, the times where you naturally want to be pessimistic are the best reason, best times where you need to be optimistic. But for most people, you know, they shouldn't be getting in and out during these periods anyway. And so that, that's the, the larger point here is the market goes up more than it goes down. And, and everything we've seen in the past that looked like a crisis that could derail the market didn't do it in the long term. So the best thing for most people to do is just to look through these crises and just keep investing because you're, the odds are stacked in your favor. You know, the tide is going with you when you invest and you're going to lose money at times. But at the end of the day, 30 years from now, you're going to have a lot more money than you did when you start. That's a great point. And just to build off that, and this was my next point is, you know, he promotes to your point, most investors should just be buying the market, dollar cost averaging in, don't worry about market timing. That's you know what most investors should do. Um, Buffett does tend to build cash and he looks to be opportunistic when he um, is buying stocks. And at the end of 08, actually after the Lehman collapse in October of 08, he wrote a, a piece in the New York Times called Buy America I Am. And in it, he basically wrote, a simple rule dictates my buying. Be fearful when others are greedy and greedy when others are fearful. So Buffett started buying and putting money to work during the depths of the financial crisis. Um, and so, you know, that just generally, I guess, to your point is those are when stocks are down, when you're in a bear market, that's, you know, oftentimes the best time to be buying stocks um, because they're effectively on sale. Yeah. And this is my reaction to this was it's, it's easier said than done. Um, because again, getting back to, you know, if you look at the depths of the financial crisis in 2008, you know, we, a lot of us thought things were going to get a lot worse than they actually got. You know, when you're in the middle of these things, everything is negative. All, all the news is negative. The stock stocks are selling off. You know, what if these, this crisis gets way worse than it is right now? And the same thing with the pandemic. I mean, the pandemic could have gotten a lot worse, but in these periods, you, you tend to, you know, stick, you, know, you tend to think more about the reasons why things could get worse than the reasons things could get better. And that's why this is really hard to do. You know, it's, it's 
sometimes those of us that talk about it, we tend to oversimplify this and say, oh, it's easy. You know, you buy at these bottoms. But the reality is you didn't know it was the bottom at the time. At the time, there was all kinds of bad news. And at the time, things could have got a lot worse. But he's right. I mean, this is this is the key is you, you have to be able to stick through these things and you have to be able to, you know, be willing to buy when everybody else is running for the exits. Right. Um, one of the the next point was something that uh, we talked about with with Kai Wu. But basically, it's like Buffett's evolving investment process and how over time, you know, he's basically evolved from going from a deep value investor of the Ben Graham type of cloth. So that's like low PE, low price to book stocks or looking for stocks and looking at their assets to then I would say a high quality sort of compounding blue chip investor, which, um, you know, Munger influenced him with that. So Buffett shifted to, you know, buy companies like Coca-Cola and American Express and, and companies like that, that were just like, you know, quality companies with competitive moats around their business. And then more recently, he's um, bought, uh, at least up to a few years ago, you know, he was basically started buying Apple. And now Apple is his largest position. And obviously Apple, as we've talked about um, on other podcasts, but we'll mention it here, you know, a lot of intangible assets. And so, you know, Buffett has been able to evolve his investment process. I think that's important for investors. It's difficult because I think if you, especially if you have early, and this was one of the points of me in the article, I think if you have early successes, you know, it's hard to move away from that. Like I think Buffett and, you know, when he started Berkshire Hathaway in 1965, being a deep value investor, some of his best returns actually came out of that period. But I think as he looked at the business and looked at where the opportunity set was and also looked at growth and scalability, he realized that, you know, being that type of deep value investor wasn't going to really be sustainable or he wouldn't be able to find the ideas. And then so he shifted over time more to the to the um, higher quality and even, you know, is is continuing to evolve. Um, and develop his investment process. This is something that all the great investors do, but it's one of the hardest things to do, especially when you put yourself out there publicly. So if you put yourself out there publicly as a deep value investor, and then you realize over time, I need to evolve this strategy, it's very hard to go back out there and say, all right, what I what I was doing is wrong. I need to evolve this for the, for the times. And now instead of being a deep value investor, I need to incorporate the quality of the company in my process. Or in his case, you know, for a long time, he just said, you know, technology was just too difficult for him to analyze. And then eventually he came around to, all right, I, I understand Apple. I can invest in Apple. You know, th this makes sense for me. And it's been a great investment for him. But that, that's very hard to do. You know, if you're out there saying, I don't buy technology stocks, it, it's very hard to pivot and say, all right, now I am buying technology stocks. But it's what you have to do because every great investor has evolved their strategy over time. You know, you can't take a strategy that worked 100 years ago and run it now without any modifications whatsoever. You can still believe in the principles you believe in, but you've still got to adjust what you're doing over time. Buffett has oftentimes also been very critical of hedge funds or investment products that have um, very high fees associated with them. And so my, my next point in the article was, you know, his, his fo focus on helping investors understand that, you know, you shouldn't be paying, you know, too much. You got to be very careful about high expensive fee type investment products, like a two in 20 type of hedge fund or something like that. Like Buffett has often been very critical of those types of fee structures. And by the way, you know, you can invest in Berkshire Hathaway for 0% fee. So, you know, if you buy Berkshire Hathaway, which is however many holding companies, a bunch of publicly traded stocks, Buffett's capital all allocation decisions, um, you know, you can effectively buy that for no management fee because Buffett doesn't charge a management fee. Um, and you don't even really have to pay commissions anymore either. So anyways, that was just, that was my, 
the sixth point was sort of his focus on getting investors to pay attention to the fees they're paying. This is something I've come around on because I would always say, you know, all that matters is the net return after fees. And so I would always say, all right, you can charge a 5% fee if you can produce more than 5% of outperformance over time. And, and I think I was wrong about that. And, and the reason I was wrong about that is because you can't identify those types of strategies that deserve those high fees in advance, or it's very hard to reliably do it. And so the one thing you can control is your fees. And so, although it's true that if you, you know, you can charge a 2% fee, if you produce more than 2% of outperformance, the, the strategies that have produced that in the past are not necessarily the ones that are going to produce it in the future. And so as an investor looking at it from the outside, the one thing you can do is keep my fees as low as possible. And that way, if I am wrong about the strategy I'm in, I've at least controlled the one thing I can control. Right. No, that's very important for sure. Yeah. I mean, if you, if you have an investment strategy that's going to give you, let's say seven or 8% and you're paying 2% in fees, well, what is that as a, as a percentage? It's like, you know, you're paying whatever it is, 20%, or something like that of your total return in fees. That's just not, you know, that's not a good way to compound your wealth out over time. So the next point, um, we're almost there. This is number seven, um, is respecting simplicity. So this was from, um, I kind of pulled this from Ben Carlson, Reholtz Wealth Management. He wrote, he wrote uh, an article, My Too Hard Pile. And it kind of is the idea that I guess on Buffett's desk, you know, there's this, uh, sort of bin and it's his too hard pile. So anything he doesn't understand, he puts it in that pile. And obviously with like technology companies that, you know, Buffett was, it took him a while to get his arms around understanding sort of these technology companies. And by the way, like a company like Apple or even Amazon, I mean, it might even be less of a technology company than it is, you know, a consumer products company or a retailer something like that, which I think Buffett actually owns Amazon too. So my point here was just, you know, he has been able to stay within his circle of competence and, you know, he doesn't get into things that are above his head and that he doesn't understand. And in Berkshire Hathaway's annual letter, he always lists his acquisition criteria um, out and it's five or six different criteria. You know, he basically says he likes to, you know, keep, deals simple and straightforward. It needs to be a large firm with long-term earnings power, good return on equity, little debt, and a management team in place that runs a simple business. I mean, those are the things that he looks for when uh, buying companies. And so those are pretty straightforward, pretty simple set of rules and criteria. I fall into this trap all the time in terms of, I should probably have a too hard pile because I'll look at something like Bitcoin and I'll say, all right, I can figure out Bitcoin. I can read the white paper and then I can look at all this other stuff and I can figure out whether Bitcoin's for real or not. You know, and I just, I can't do th things like that. And I, I have no business attempting to do things like that. And, and that's something I've learned over time is, you know, I, it's, it's good to figure out what you're good at and, it's, and stay within that. That doesn't mean you can't expand what you're good at over time, but you don't have to have an opinion on everything. You know, another good example is we've been doing some stuff on the podcast here. Where we've had people talk about option dealer positioning, and I've gotten deep into this option dealer positioning, trying to figure out how it affects the market. And, and it's great for me to learn about that, but I shouldn't be investing based on option dealer positioning. There's much smarter people than me who have figured out option dealer positioning. And so I think that that's a really good point. You know, you want, you want to understand what you do well, and you want to stick with what you do well, although you may be able to expand it. You don't want to get, go down these rabbit holes of things that you probably have no business having an opinion on. Yeah. And then the last point that I sort of um, had in the article was give back with humility. So, I mean, Buffett, obviously one of the richest men in the world, he's giving uh, 99% of his wealth uh, to the giving pledge when he dies. Um, and, you know, he's always maintained what seems to be a relatively humble lifestyle. I mean, driving like a, 
a, I don't know, it's like a Cadillac he bought like a few years ago, living in the same you know house in Omaha that he's lived for a very long time. I mean, you don't see him on you know buying these crazy yachts or anything like that. Certainly, he could afford it. And the humility part is also very important to me. I've, I've always admired this about Buffett, and maybe it's easier when you're worth that much to be humble. But he, you know, he does contribute a lot of his success to luck. I mean, he says lucky genes. He was, you know, born in America. Um, he was born a male. You know, he ha so there a lot of a lot of things he he attributes, you know, to I guess to luck and just the way his life has kind of uh, worked out. Um, you know, he's not sitting there patting himself on the back saying, I'm, I'm, I'm the best investor um, in the world. He he would say, you know, a lot of things had to line up for those, you know, results to actually come to fruition. And he's, he's really rare. I mean, how many billionaires do you see that are not driving around in the fancy cars and, and you know, having the yachts and doing all this other stuff? The temptation is so strong, you know, as, as you get more and more money to try to spend the money. And, you know, it's something we definitely should have a lot of respect for, for him that he, that he has given back. And he's, there's this phrase I heard, uh, this um, saying I heard from someone at one point, which is like, life is not a contest to see who dies with the most money. And I think that's true. You know, so it's, it's important that when you have money, it's important to give the money back to somebody else, not to say, you know, here was my bank account on the day I died. What, what am I going to do with that? That's, that's of no value to me. So I think it's great that he's given back. And I think it's a good example for other people as well. Yeah. So I think when we look back on all of this, what we're going to find, and I'm sure there's, we could probably come up with a dozen other contributions. These are the ones that just stood out to me um, that we wanted to share with you guys. And I think, you know, when we, when we think about Buffett, you know, and we actually talk about these things, these contributions are what is important for investors. It's not, you know, the past performance of Berkshire Hathaway is what it is. What's important is to learn from, I think, the things that Buffett sort of has helped us understand and try to incorporate these things as best we can into the way that we invest. And I think if you can do some of those things, it will certainly help make you a better, more successful investor. Yeah. And you know, most, a lot of billionaires just keep their secrets to themselves. And that's one of the great things about Buffett is he's, he's made a lot of money, but he shares as much as he possibly can with other people about what he's learned along the way. And I think that's great relative to some other people who might be in the same position as him. Yeah. Good point. Okay. So thank you guys for uh, watching this episode. We'll see you next time. Thank you. Hi guys, this is Justin again. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode of Excess Returns. You can follow Jack on Twitter at, at @practicalquant and follow me on Twitter at, at JJ Carboneau. If you found this discussion interesting and valuable, please subscribe in either iTunes or on YouTube or leave a review or a comment. We appreciate it.